Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 164. We'll continue in the Psalms with a brief summary of chapters 44 through 47 and follow with some thoughts about striking the patriarchal bargain. One almost can't help but glamorize the past, those good old days. And the poet is no different. He begins Psalm 44 with a trip down nostalgia lane when, quote, with our own ears we have heard our fathers recounted to us a deed that you did in their days, in days of yore. You, your hand, dispossessed nations, and you planted them. You smashed peoples and sent them away. Notice the shift to first-person plural here. It's more pronounced in the Hebrew. The poet is speaking for all of us and how we reveled in all those stories of how God cleared the way for Joshua to dispossess the Canaanites of their land. It set such a deep and profound precedent, quote, For not in my bow do I trust, and my sword will not make me victorious, for you rescued us from our foes, and our enemies you put to shame. Except that today, for the poet, that precedent is no longer relevant, because, quote, You neglected and disgraced us, and did not sally forth in our ranks. You turned us back from the foe, and our enemies took their plunder. Oh, damn! And why did God do this? Well, one would expect the Tanakh to answer such a question with... Idolatry. Except the poet pushes back. The evil wrought upon the Jews is not because of faithlessness. Just the opposite. Quote, All this befell us, yet we did not forget you, and we did not betray your pact. Our heart has not failed, nor have our footsteps strayed from your path. And though we remain steadfast, quote, for your sake we are killed all day long, we are counted as sheep for slaughter. And we don't know why. The poet concludes this psalm with a literal wake-up call, quote, Awake, why sleep, O master? Rouse up, neglect not forever. Why do you hide your face? Forget our affliction, our oppression. That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. What the fuck are we going to do now? What are we going to do? Psalm 45 stands apart from all the psalms in its superscription and subject. It begins, quote, For the lead player, An Shoshanim, for the Korahites, a maskil, a song of love. Though Shoshanim literally means lilies, it probably refers to another unknown musical term, and the designation of this psalm as song of love only occurs once in all five books of the psalms. It is also a royal psalm as the poet praises the king's beauty in the context of celebrating the king's wedding with a foreign princess. The poet alludes to the king's beauty, heroism, state craftsmanship, his just and righteous rule, as well as his wealth and affluence, before turning his attention to the bride who comes from Tyre, the kingdom to the north. She misses home and her family, but she can console herself with a king as groom, who will shower pearls and gold and embroidered things upon her, and the privilege of birthing sons, who will sit on the throne and rule as princes in all the land. Psalm 46 consists of a tight three-stanza poem with an even tighter message, quote, God is a shelter and strength for us. Even though, as the first stanza attests, there are earthquakes and storms and other natural disasters, we will not fear. Even though, as the second stanza testifies, nations and kingdoms array against us in our city, quote, God in its midst, it will not collapse. As the chorus reminds us, quote, The Lord of armies is with us, a fortress for us, Jacob's God, Selah. 
And speaking of armies, the third stanza informs us that God will not only save us, but bring peace to the world. Nice. Psalm 47 reminds us all who really runs this town, God. Quote, all peoples, clap hands, shout out to God with a sound of glad song. For though God smites his enemies, he also protects his beloved Israel. And for this, we should acknowledge and acclaim, quote, him to God, him, him to our king. Oh, him, for king of all earth is God, him, joyous song. And on that triumphant note, here endeth the lesson. An epithalamium is a special poem written in honor of marriage. It literally means bridal song from the Greek epi, upon, and thalamos, bridal chamber. It had its heyday with the Greeks, with children singing this poem of praise to the bride and groom at the door of the nuptial chamber, but the Romans had a similar custom as well. It had a brief revival during the Italian Renaissance when Pernozze became popular. The Pernozze was a pamphlet printed in a limited run with a poem honoring the newly married bride and groom. The epithalamium generally focused on three topics, the beauty of the bride and sometimes the groom, the lavishness of the wedding and blessings of fertility, which, if you're steeped in the patriarchy, is really all you need. If you manage to snag all three, you've won the lottery. Because, as a woman, what do you really need more than a semi-attractive husband, financial security, and mothering children? Now, we've had over a century of feminist ferment in North America, and, well, by now, we've heard all the critiques of this plan for women that there is, and what women think about the patriarchy. I'm Mona El-Tahawi, and as always, fuck the patriarchy, especially today! But what about the women who say, you know, I've thought about it, and I want the semi-attractive husband. I choose financial security and child mothering. I want someone to write an epithalamium for me. I want all the blessings of patriarchy. And what about the woman who votes in secret for candidates that want to divest them and other women of bodily autonomy, or the women who willingly cover their hair when they don't have to, or the women who back weak-sauce male candidates over strong female progressive candidates? To this, my old college contemporaries at the New School would say, These women are living in false consciousness. These women are asleep. If only someone would come along and wake them up, the world would look different overnight. Women, after all, make up the majority of the world's population, if only they acted like it. So let me stop right here for a moment and say that maybe I, as a white cisgender male, should keep silent about these things because I am sitting here as a beneficiary of patriarchy. If I obscure my Jewishness, I can stride the earth like a colossus as a white man. I'm really enjoying that. Anyway, um, where do I get off telling women what they should do in order to survive in the patriarchy? I don't face the full weight of patriarchy pressing on me and my body ever. I can go out at night anytime I want by myself. I can cross the street and vehicles miraculously stop for me. Perhaps I should be silent. I don't get to tell Palestinians how to vote or how to resist occupation. I don't white-splain to black people about racism. Am I about to mansplain? I guess you'll have to let me know in the comments. So here it goes. I think I can contribute just something 
to the conversation only because in a democracy, the choices and decisions some women make impact me as well. Patriarchy didn't get to where it is without a plan. Any form of a domination cannot work without a plan. And patriarchy had over two and a half millennia to work out all the kinks. And one key aspect of what they worked out is what Turkish author and researcher Deniz Tkandiyoti calls the patriarchal bargain. Patriarchy makes a bargain with a certain kind of woman. A similar bargain is made in any society where one group dominates another. The British made one during the Raj in India, whites made one in South Africa during apartheid, and, well, let's move on to the terms of the bargain. Now we're talking about Western late capitalist developed countries, ostensible democracies. So if you, a certain kind of white woman, submit to the existing power structures, our rules, our ideas, then yes, well, you will be subordinate to us white men, but you will be above everyone else. All people of color, LGBTQ folks, immigrants, you can be in second place, which is pretty good. The silver medal, which is, I guess, much better than nothing. Because we're adding a little something to this month's sales contest. As you all know, first prize is a Cadillac Eldorado. Anybody want to see second prize? Second prize is a set of steak knives. Third prize is you fired. And all you have to put up with is, you know, a little male violence. Sometimes. Rarely. Well, maybe often. But not systemically. That's it. Such a small price to pay for security for being second. Because what's the alternative? You don't just end up a little poor and worried. In the U.S. especially, you end up broken. And best of all, it's your fault. What's your name? Fuck you! That's my name! You know why, mister? Because you drove a Hyundai to get here tonight. I drove an $80,000 BMW. That's my name. I could cite a 2017 study in the Australian Journal of Psychology that found that some women feel supported by the patriarchy because they managed to make the bargain work for them. But we've all experienced bargains like this, say at school, when the bully chooses someone else to victimize instead of you, and you do what you can to keep the bully's attention focused elsewhere so he doesn't pummel you. In the case of that Australian study, the researchers found that the women they interviewed tended toward what we refer to in the biz as benevolent sexism. That is, the belief that women should be respected but protected by men, which shields them somewhat from hostile sexism, which displays an overt and sometimes violent prejudice towards women. Can you blame anyone under these circumstances if you look around and all you see are hierarchies and power rankings? Doesn't it seem natural? And don't you want to make sure you have a good spot? Even in the poet's worldview, hierarchies and power rankings abound. God is a king, after all, and we are all his subjects. And among humans, there is a power ranking where gods elect sit on top, and then there is everybody else, and then there are idolaters. Smithies, are they booing me? Uh, no, they're saying boo-earns, boo-earns. Are you saying boo or boo-earns? Frederick Jameson said that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is an end to capitalism. I would add patriarchy to that list. I would add to that list any system that presents itself as so ubiquitous that it must be natural or divinely ordained. <laughs> But 
But here's the thing. What do we do with this information? What do we do with the woman who wants the epithalamium, the white veil and Badekin on her wedding day, or the hijab, or the three and a half kids and the minivan? Do we blame anyone for striking this bargain with the oppressor when the cost for not bargaining is so high? And can I even use this kind of language without offending the sensibility of the woman who makes these choices? Me? Bargaining with my oppressor? You mean my husband? And again, I don't want to cast blame. Women, after all, are placed in an impossible situation by the patriarchy, by men. So let's give blame where blame is due. But here's the thing about bargains. They have to be struck again and again, and every time you have to re-up the deal, there's room to shift the terms, to tweak the norms. So for those that want to strike bargains, the bargains of today are not the same bargains of a decade ago. This is somewhat heartening, except where this constant negotiation, where will it lead? Where will this renegotiation lead? Will enough women ascend to positions of some power that they can collectively dismantle the master's house with the master's tools? Are these bargaining women secretly a fifth column, or are they just looking out for themselves? Because some women do ascend, women collectively do not. These some women are regarded as special and unique, truly heroic women who overcome all the obstacles patriarchy seem to throw at them. And for that, patriarchy celebrates them. Think Serena Joy in The Handmaid's Tale, or Ivanka, or the princess in Psalm 45. Patriarchy let them win because they're special. And there's the lesson for all of us. These women win because they made the necessary changes in themselves to win. They filed down their edge. They tempered their temper. The system doesn't need to change. It never does. The individual has to change. And if they change enough, if you change enough, you can win too. But really, it's the system that needs to be changed or smashed, whichever. This bargain, as any gambler in Vegas will tell you, smacks of a sucker's game. Because despite whatever effort or system or trick you think you have to get over on it, the house always wins. To paraphrase something that Toni Morrison said in 1975, this bargain is a distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you negotiating over and over and over again your reason for being. And for the fourth time, I don't want to come off as blaming the victim here. I realize that this is a choice that for many is a do or die choice, literally. And I have nothing but contempt and criticism and anger for the men who force women to make this choice every day, who force women to be complicit in, their, in theirs and other women's oppression. But the system won't work. Patriarchy can't work without complicity. And when we talk about complicity, about collaboration, I'm looking first and foremost at all those not-all-men men who stand idly by while their fellow men run wild. We well-meaning tryhards. We need to take and use our voices and our bodies to dismantle this system. This is on us. We benefit from it. We're already in. Who better than us to take it apart? When you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. But I have news for you, fellow white men. It's not. Here's the motherfucking tea. But I'm also looking at women who go along to get along at the expense of folks who don't want the patriarchy to define their lives anymore. Look, this bargain really isn't a bargain. Either you play and maybe not lose right now, but eventually you'll lose and lose big. 
or you can take your meager pot and go home. In either case, there's a price to pay, but how much and who pays also depends on you. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 165, when we continue in Psalms with chapters 48 through 50.